Okay, good morning, Gateway. Am I in? Yeah, good. Uh, Mark Twain once said that man is the only animal that blushes and needs to. Uh, blushing is our physical response to usually mild forms of guilt and shame. Guilt can sometimes be a helpful emotion. It can motivate positive behavior and demotivate negative behavior. I read an interesting article this week that differentiated between guilt and shame. It was written by uh, Annette Kramer, writing in the American Scientific Magazine. And she said this, quote, When we feel shame, we view ourselves in a negative light. When we feel guilt, we view some action of ours in a negative light. Guilt can be helpful, but shame is damaging. I think she's right. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a couple of quick ideas that I found about shame this week after, you know, quick scrub of the internet. One, we feel shame, listen to this, when we are diminished or minimized in the eyes of others because of something we've done or something about us. Secondly, our, our shame has its roots in messages we've received from others, often in childhood. Third, I thought this one was particularly interesting. It came from that uh, American Scientific article. We feel shame when we violate the social norms we believe in. So it comes from things like how we look or something about our childhood or our upbringing or something that happened to us early in our lives or, or something that's happening right now. In some way, uh, these things violate our sense of what's socially normal. They, they set us apart, but in a negative way, at least in our minds, we are, we are diminished by these things, whatever, whatever they are. Now, this is not a conversation about shame today, although that would be a very worthwhile conversation for us to have sometime. Today is about a very specific kind of shame. And like all shame, this particular kind of shame is toxic. And it's damaging to us, emotionally and spiritually. So I want you to listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He said, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So for many of us, this kind of shame is a feature of our spiritual lives. We shrink back from testifying about our Lord. We, we shrink back from associating ourselves with, with other Christians that, that we think are weird, in our minds anyway. And we do so because of shame. Now, often when we're asked to testify about our Lord, it's not some dramatic example, but I'm going to give you a dramatic example this morning from my life. I've, I've told this before here at Gateway, but many years ago, Diane and I were living in the Boston area, and uh, I was downtown eating lunch one day with someone, and I was taking a bus back to where Diane and I lived, and quite out of the ordinary, unexpected, I wasn't planning for this, I hadn't thought about this, this wasn't, certainly wasn't a daydream of mine, I was minding my own business sitting on the bus by myself, and I really felt pressed by God that I should stand up and start preaching on the bus. And my immediate response, being the, I mean, the deeply holy and profoundly righteous and brave guy that I am, I thought, that is an idiotic idea. There's no way in the world I'm doing that. And I, I don't know if you felt God's 
hand press on you before, but I did. I got, I felt almost sick to my stomach eventually because I knew that I was supposed to stand up and do this. He even gave me my end. Right when I was thinking about all this, I heard two or three people around me in different conversations take the Lord's name in vain. And I knew instantly that I should stand up and say, you know, I've heard several people take the Lord's name in vain. What I'd like to do now is use it appropriately. And then I was just going to launch into an explanation of the gospel. Had it all lined up in my mind. And then I actually imagined myself standing up on the bus saying that. And I kept repeating myself, you're an idiot. And uh, I didn't do it. Now, later... I felt guilty about not having done it. But it was shame that prevented me from doing it. I shrank back because it seemed so far outside, at least in my mind, of what was normal, acceptable behavior. We're in the middle of a series of conversations we're calling Passing It On. And, and we're, we're looking at the first two chapters of 2 Timothy. And in today's section, the Apostle Paul gives two motivations for not being ashamed. It started with that, with that verse, don't be ashamed of testimony about our Lord or about me, his prisoner. And then he gives two motivations. The first motivation is the truth and the power of the gospel itself. And the second motivation was Paul's heart, Paul's experience, and Paul's motivation. So uh, let's launch into that this morning. But before we do, let's get a running start. I'm going to read the last two verses. Again, just to give us a running start, I'm going to read the last two verses from where we ended up last week, and then we'll begin. And today we're going to focus on verses 8 through 12 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. And would you do me a favor? Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. And I'm going to read 6 and 7, and then we'll focus on 8 through 12. If you were here last week, you'll remember this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. You may be seated. The word translated gospel here in this passage and throughout the New Testament is the Greek word euangelion or evangelion. It's where we get our word evangelism. It means literally good news. And in the New Testament, it means the good news of God's love demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Timothy, Paul exhorts, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, right? Don't be ashamed of Jesus' story or of your brother in Christ. By the way, I suspect Paul had a dicey reputation in Ephesus. They may have thought of him as a somewhat wacky 
troublemaker, but that reputation was entirely unfair. The trouble had been caused by Paul's critics, not by Paul. Still, one could imagine Timothy being timid of associating himself with Paul and that reputation. So don't be ashamed, Timothy, of Jesus or of me. And then look at the contrast Paul makes. Instead of being ashamed, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Or as the New English Version puts it, accept your share of suffering for the gospel. Evidently, this comes to all of us. So, imagine with me this morning that Timothy gets invited to a party. One of the party people is a person in his discipleship group, and they happen to be good friends with uh, someone, a family, who's hosting this party. They live on the fashionable side of Ephesus. It's just outside the city in the Willisford neighborhood, and Timothy wants to make a good impression. During the party, uh, Timothy finds himself with a group of strangers in a conversation about the the latest soiree at the temple of Artemis. Evidently, it was quite an affair. Party goer number one says, uh, hey, Timothy, were you there? It was quite an event. And then there's laughter and conversation, other conversations going on all around. No one's paying too much attention to anyone else's uh, conversation at this point. Timothy says, um, no, no, I don't really visit uh, the temples. Party goer number two, why not? And Timothy responds, well, are you familiar with the way? I, I'm, I'm a part of the way. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a disciple of, of Jesus, the Christ. Well, now the party around them gets a little quieter. <laughs> Extra ears tune in. Some of them actively lean in, others still at a distance. And party going number one again, awkwardly. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I'm not too familiar with, with that belief. Uh, do you have a temple? Where is it? Now, Timothy doesn't realize it, but at this point, the host of the party has tuned in to the conversation. He, from an adjacent conversation, he knows a little bit about this. So the host says, no, they don't have a temple. I think they believe that that man, Jesus, uh, the Jew from Nazareth, I think he was killed by the Romans. I think they believe he was their temple or something like that. Only as far as I understand, he's actually a dead Jew. Isn't that right? Timothy responds, well, that's not, ex that's not exactly right. The host says, wait a, wait a minute. I'm sure the Romans crucified him 20 years ago in Jerusalem. I'm sure that's what happened. Timothy says, uh, yeah, okay, yes, that's definitely what happened. The host responds, okay, so why are you guys still talking about a dead Jew? What does Timothy feel? The party has decidedly moved in toward his conversation. What does Timothy feel? Does he feel boldness? Ready to go to work, defend his faith? Maybe, or maybe not. Timothy doesn't know these people. He's very much out of his element. Maybe he feels a little embarrassed, which according to that American Scientific article is a mild form of shame. Maybe he wants to laugh it off, get out of the party as fast as he can, or at least get out of this conversation. Maybe he doesn't want to draw any more attention. Or maybe he feels a little put off, a little bit mad. Along with his embarrassment, maybe he's a little ticked. And he can easily justify not saying anything at all here. By the way, these people aren't going to listen anyway. 
let's say this is a good day for Timothy. Let's say Timothy has just received his letter from the Apostle Paul and he's feeling emboldened. So Timothy says, yes, he was crucified. That's true. But three days later, he actually rose from the dead. Host says, what? What, what do you mean rose from the dead? What do you mean? Timothy says, he rose from the dead. He's alive. Look, a whole bunch of his immediate followers, they saw him several times together. At one point, I think it was like 500 people saw him all at one time physically, rose from the dead. Host says, okay, okay, honey, let's not invite this guy to any more of our parties. Timothy eventually leaves and feels what? There's a very good chance he feels awkward, maybe even a little bit ashamed. Why should I put myself through that, Paul? That was embarrassing, and I'm sure they didn't listen anyway. Honestly, what I said sounded ridiculous even to me. And so, Paul gives Timothy and us two motivations to step boldly into that party conversation. Motivation number one, because of the truth and power of the gospel. In other words, hang in there, Timothy, because the story we're telling is 100% true and it changes everything. In laying out the truth and power of the gospel in verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us the purpose of our salvation, the basis of our salvation, and the process by which it happened. The purpose of our salvation, the basis of our salvation, and the process by which it happened. And by the way, don't snooze on the fact that Paul speaks of his experience here as being saved, quote. He uses this word many times to describe our experience with Christ, and it's a very dramatic word because what has happened to us is very dramatic. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. He begins with the purpose of our salvation. God has saved us and called us to a holy life. In other words, we are set apart. We are unique. We have a wonderful, profound, unique connection to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Our behavior and our character is a reflection of him and, and his work in us. That's the purpose of our salvation. That's what he means by holy life. Actually, it's even more purposeful than that. The word translated holy life is literally holy calling. We are saved and called to a holy calling. Think of that. God has a calling for us. He, he has a unique, profound, set-apart job for each of us to do that's in line with his character and purposes. This job is done through our behavior and through our testimony. Right? He wants us to carry the great good news to those around us. That's the purpose. That's a significant part of why he saved us. Then, he talks about the basis of our salvation. Look at it. It's not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And it, I didn't make that up. In other places, he flat out calls it a gift we didn't do this. It wasn't based on our early Sunday school experience, or it wasn't based on our deep search for meaning while we were in college. It wasn't based on those years of Catholic school. Our salvation is a gift based on his grace, not our knowledge, not our, not our goodness, not our performance. It's, it happened because of his grace. That's the basis. It's a gift. Somebody reminded me recently of a 
illustration I've used a number of times here before. Essentially, you know, religion is spelled D-O. It's what we do for God. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's what God has done for us in Christ and what he's done in us because of what Christ did. That's the basis. Finally, he addresses the process of our salvation. How did it happen? Look at the middle of verse 9. This is crazy. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus, what? Before the beginning of time. So, Jesus was preexistent. Before there was anything, Jesus, the Son of God, was. And, and so was his intention toward us. Before the beginning of time. That's when our salvation started. Not with that life-changing conversation you had with your premarital counselor 15 years ago. Not with that college student ministry. God's grace was given to us before the beginning of time. And it happened. It was accomplished in Jesus Christ. Specifically through his death and resurrection, although he doesn't mention that here. But our salvation has finally been revealed. It's finally shown up. We finally get it through the coming of Jesus. That's when we could finally say, oh, there it is. There's my salvation. Because he destroyed our ultimate enemy. He destroyed death. And the story of his life and death and resurrection brought life and eternity to light. We now see it. So we can now see it and accept it and experience it. We now get it. That's how it happened. So hang in there, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner because this story we're telling is absolutely 100% true and it changes everything. It has changed us. Then Paul gives a second large motivation in verses 11 and 12. Let's call it the look at, just look at me principle. In other words, to motivate you beyond your shame and your fear, look at me and my example. I was trying to think of an illustration of this this week, and I could not. I bet you I have seen a dozen at least old war movies or old westerns where, you know, some character is having to undergo field surgery or surgery without anesthesia or a woman is giving birth and someone who, that they love and trust is standing beside them going, don't think of the pain, just look at me. I was trying to come up with one of those illustrations, and I asked Diane about this. She's good at coming up with these illustrations, and the only thing that we could think of was the time... It was kind of an anti-illustration, the time when Diane was giving birth, I think it was uh, her first child, and she was told, you know, you need to find something on, in the room to focus on, and so Diane literally found a clock on the wall that she was absolutely focused on. It was very, very helpful for her. I wanted her point of focus to be me, so several times I, I got over and said, hey, beautiful, you're doing great. Get out of my way! So it was actually the opposite of the illustration that I'm looking for. Timothy, just look at me. Just, just uh, focus on me. I've suffered far worse, but I'm still hanging in there. Let's read verses 11 and 12. And, and of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. I was. That's why I'm suffering as I am. But I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Uh, by the way, the unspoken subtext here is not only have I suffered far worse, Timothy, but so will you. And you can do this. I know you can. Just look at me. You may remember that Paul was writing this letter from a Roman prison. And if you know anything about Paul's life in ministry, you know it was no picnic. 
In fact, his current prison term is not anywhere near the worst of it. And in his current circumstances, he didn't know what was going to happen. Don't, don't miss that. If you're drifting, don't miss that. Paul did not know what was going to happen. He didn't know he would ever get out of prison again. What's even more striking than that, Paul, Paul was convinced, and rightly so, that God's hand was in this. He said back in verse 8, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. I'm Jesus' prisoner, Paul was saying, and Paul wasn't even completely sure why. I don't know what's going on here, Timothy. I don't even know why. I know God is sovereign. I know he's in charge of this. I know his purposes are being served, so I'm here because of his hand. But I can't tell you how this ends exactly, what the purpose is being served. I don't know what, and I don't know why, but I know who. This is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Paul had entrusted his entire life into Jesus' hands, his future, his, his goals, his, his ministry, his, his friends, everything. And he knew beyond doubt that Jesus could guard it, that he could protect it until the day when all things will be made right and new. As I was thinking about this this week, I thought of those of you who are suffering chronically right now. And for some of you, it's just an ongoing daily hassle, and often far worse. For others of you, there's been serious health compromises. And in a few cases, some of you are struggling, suffering toward the end of your life. I can't imagine. And I want you to know, I can't say, just look at me. I've not done what yet what you're being asked to do. From where I sit, I don't know that I could. But Jesus can. Jesus can say, just look at me. Just keep your eyes on me. You may not know what, and you may not know why, but you know who. And I've got you. And I've got your circumstances. Jesus can say that. Before we leave this topic this morning, I, I want us to consider something. Why did this letter gain such broad appeal? Why did the Holy Spirit preserve this letter for our attention still today? I mean, it was written to a senior church leader, to one person. Uh, did the Holy Spirit want to make sure that all pastors were familiar with these principles? Yes. Uh, did he also want those in significant positions of church leadership to know this? Of course. But this letter was ultimately included in the Bible because all of us need it. All of us have been saved for a holy calling. All of us have a job to do, and suffering comes for all of us. You know the Greek word behind testimony here is the word marturion. It mean, it's where we get our word martyr. The gospel is very good news, but it's not easy news. We're all called to suffer for his name. Plus, all of us have doubts about what and why at times. And maybe most importantly, almost all of us will struggle with shrinking back at times and being ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Here's the bottom line. We're shaped and inspired and moved and formed and changed and motivated and placed. We're placed at Panera or at the gym or at softball practice or at the bus stop or in biology class or at our work cubicle. We're shaped and we're placed 
in order that we might live a holy life and testify about our Lord. Our career is not our purpose. Our job is our cover. It provides us with money that we need to live, and it gives us the opportunity to live a holy life and to testify about our Lord. And wherever we're placed, we're called to tell his story and show his character. Before we finish this morning, I want to run a quick advertisement. We're going to spend four weeks, this is week two, we're spending four weeks talking about passing it on because that's what we're going to be focusing on as a church this coming fall. And to launch us into that process, we have invited a guest to come for the weekend of September 17 and 18. She's been as effective in this process as anyone I've ever known. She's also a great communicator, and she's going to share her experiences with us. You're going to laugh, and you're going to cry, and you're going to be inspired. Please don't miss this. If you're in town Saturday, September 17th, and you don't have a medical emergency, please consider signing up to come to The Time Is Now. Go to mygateway.life and sign up. You won't be sorry. Dean, give me that last slide. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up if they would. Let's close up. Uh, I want you to read these two passages to yourself. They're from two separate letters from the Apostle Paul, first to ancient church in Corinth, the Christians there, and then to the small group of Christians in the city of Rome. And as you read this, I want you to ask yourself, what do these passages tell you about the gospel? And if you're at home, I'm asking you to do the same. What do these passages tell you about the gospel? Stand with me if you would. Uh, let's close our eyes. What, what, um, what has God uh, been noodling with you this morning from our time today? What, what has he said? Where is he stirring? Where's the press of his hand? You need to think about a, a relationship. You need to think about somewhere where you're placed. This is some behavior. A re-recognition of the, the power and the truth of the gospel. desire to be inflamed to share that with others if people know Jesus you tell them more if they don't know him you introduce him that's our job it's pretty simple last question for us what uh in response to what God has said, what action will you take? What's your movement this week? In what direction? 